DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Fiorella Nash, who is a writer and bioethicist in the United Kingdom with over 10 years' experience researching life issues with a feminist perspective. She speaks often at international conferences and has appeared on radio and in print discussing abortion, gendercide, maternal health, and commercial surrogacy. She's an award-winning novelist and has published numerous books under the nom de plume Fiorella Di Maria, including Poor Banished Children, Do No Harm, and Will Never Tell Them. With Fiorella Nash, we go inside the pages of The Abolition of Woman, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women, published by Ignatius Press. Fiorella, thank you so much for joining me. It's lovely to be on the show. What a powerful book, The Abolition of Woman, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women. It it is such a traumatic thing that is happening to women today, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing um, we're seeing so many changes. I mean, I would I would be the first person to say that I think there has been progress for women um, in in the recent decades. Um, you know, we've got a hundred years since the vote the vote for women uh, in Britain this year. But I think there are so many ways in which women are being challenged and are being betrayed. That's not really being reported in the mainstream media it's under the radar and really with the book I wanted to try to talk about that and try to sound the alarm if you like. You know what I find so compelling is that in many cases it's women hurting other women. Yes I find it very very tragic it seems to me it goes against the the very idea of feminism certainly against what the early feminists ever intended for women that you have this um almost this dogmatic obsession with abortion within the feminist movement, particularly within radical feminism, and the way other women are bullied and silenced and just pushed out of the movement in such a, um, a dictatorial way. This is not the way any social movement should behave. You know, it was supposed to be about giving women a voice. And yet women who don't stick to the narrative, women who don't go along with the script, are being pushed out of the movement, are being deprived of a voice. And I feel this is a very, very great scandal within feminism. Yeah, isn't that the case? Because here in the United States, anyway, there is this perceived understanding in the media that somehow all women have to move in a certain direction together. Like we're a block of cattle almost, where (laughs) when it comes to a vote, it's the woman's vote, as opposed to being allowed to be the individual, to be able to make your own decision. Mm. But absolutely, it is a crass form of misogyny. The idea that 50% of the world's population could ever think the same way about everything, particularly about incredibly divisive and sensitive issues like abortion, is ludicrous. And it feeds into a very old-fashioned idea that there is a particular way that women are supposed to think and a particular way that women are supposed to behave. This is what the early fem- feminists were chafing against, this idea that there was, you know, there's a conventional woman, there's a, a way of thinking, a way of behaving, and we all have to conform to it. And yet we've done exactly the same thing in our own time by creating this incredibly narrow vision of womanhood, particularly of female sexuality. And you have to subscribe to it or you're not a real woman or you're an anti-woman woman. 
it, it's absurd. We've, we've come full circle. And you can't even really even have a conversation anymore about it because in some ways for different elements in that misogyny, as you spoke of, it can turn literally violent, not only in the discourse, but in the actual physical behavior of others. Yes, I mean, we've seen uh, cases recently that have been filmed. Um, this is one of the great things with smartphones is that these incidents can get filmed. They've always happened, mm-hmm. um, but they're now, they're now getting onto social media um, of women being attacked. There was that a couple of cases in, in Canada, if you remember, that man who kicks a woman um, in full view of her own camera. And it's very frightening because... In these cases, there tends to be a huge lack of interest by the police in even prosecuting these cases and a lack of indignation more generally. You know, no woman should be facing violence because of her beliefs. That ought to be a fairly fundamental principle of feminism. And yet these cases go completely ignored. But much more broadly, the amount of verbal abuse that women have to put up with, uh, including rape threats and sort of sexual, you know, very, uh, very nasty sort of sexual language being used against them um, in a way that, you know, ought to be completely unheard of in the 21st century. And yet it's become part of the course. When I'm uh, on any kind of debate or any kind of media, apart from people like your good selves, I always assume that I'm going to be attacked. I don't mean that my ideas are going to be attacked, but that I am going to be attacked. Because, of course, when you put forward a controversial idea, you expect to be rigorously challenged. But that's not what's happening here. You're getting women being personally attacked in a very aggressive, very bullying way, which is completely unacceptable. That is quite extraordinary. I mean, everything about abortion is violent. Mm. That in itself should be something that needs to be addressed. And yet, even the action of the abortion I mean, you have a section in your book about the Kermit Gosnell situation here in the United mm-hmm. States. That, but that element of the violence, we don't want to look at. We, we're forced to turn our eyes away. Yes, it, I found it extraordinary, the, the response there has been to the Gosnell case, and of course to the Gosnell film, the movie that's come out. Um, the media blackout there was after he was arrested and put on trial but the fact that he was able to go on all those years performing these abuses under the noses of the very organizations that were supposed to stop him and even after you know he was put on trial and sentenced society hasn't learned its lesson there are still attempts being made to cover it up um some of the reactions i found almost almost a form of victim blaming you're getting um commentators saying oh that the movie is very dangerous because it demonizes abortion providers well did it happen or didn't it mm-hmm. what it is actually showing is something completely true that happened that the public should be aware of and it was there's still this element of censorship going on well and even those as you said you uh, shooting the messenger you know for example we've just gone through this whole experience in the united states of the me too movement Mm-hmm. And where women should have the ability to speak up, that they should be allowed to have a voice. And yet those women who speak up, like, for example, Abby Johnson, as you chronicle her experience with Planned Parenthood, they end up getting assaulted. They're not allowed to express that experience that she had. Yes, I actually think that the the treatment of women who have been involved with abortion, particularly who've had abortions, is particularly disgraceful. And um, 
I know there are now a lot of groups in the States, in Britain, such as Silent No More. Um, we have um, a welfare organisation in this country called ARCH, um, Abortion Recovery Care Helpline, uh, which was founded by women who regretted their abortions for women because they realised they had nowhere to go. But the way they're treated, the way they're demonised and ridiculed is an absolute disgrace. It's Again, very old fashioned. They're treated as hysterics. They're treated as attention seekers. Every possible nasty anti-woman stereotype is used against them rather than simply listening to them and acknowledging, acknowledging the validity of their experience. Well, your experience in the UK right now, I mean, you have such a, a hotbed situation in your politic, uh, just with everything that's happening with Brexit and, and different yeah. other things, that for many people, what occurred in Ireland, for example, may have slipped under a radar, but their uh, recent support of abortion in that particular country, that should stop everybody. And that was a dramatic shift for that country. Yes, um, it didn't go under the radar in Britain, certainly, um, because we're so close to it here. Um, and it really was a very, very terrible tragedy for the Irish people, uh, but for the pro-life movement more generally, because it's fairly unusual that you have a situation where a population vote on that sort of subject. So, for example, in the States, you had Roe v. Wade, but that decision was made by a small number of lawmakers. Even in Britain, where the decision to legalise abortion was made through Parliament, through the democratic process. In the end, a relatively small number of MPs made that decision on behalf of the British public. There was a huge level of opposition to abortion in the 60s when that was carried out. But here in Ireland, you had two thirds of the population personally asking for abortion, you know, wow. personally supporting abortion. And that, if you consider the way things have changed in Ireland, I mean, that is a huge shift. Um, and that was a particularly ugly campaign. It was a very vicious campaign. The way the no campaign retreated was appalling. And the sad thing is that the no campaign were fronted by young women. You know, that, that was the big irony. It was portrayed very much as women against, uh, progressives against the old-fashioned Ireland, the old Catholic Ireland, the Ireland of the Magdalen laundries, you know, all of this very hateful rhetoric was um, being spouted the whole time. And yet those who were voting no and those who were, were heading that campaign were young women. And yet that seemed to go almost completely unnoticed. You know, outside of, I'm careful about saying it this way, because it, actual killing of a child in the womb in and of itself is horrific. But what it does to the female body, especially when there are multiple abortions, that is something that is not told to the general public as well. And that is something that needs to be heard. But yet that is silence too, isn't it? Yes, I mean, the majority, the overwhelming majority of women who present for abortion are told that it's fine, it's safe, it's easy. They might feel a bit down for a couple of days afterwards, but that's perfectly normal. And the overwhelming majority of women feel relieved about it. They're given um, a very sugar-coated understanding of what abortion involves. They're not really even told what the procedure involves. Um, I mean, one thing I do talk about a lot in the book, because I'm a writer by profession, I'm very interested in language. I'm interested in the way we use and manipulate language to create the particular 
response that we want. And it's very noticeable. If you look at the literature, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, it's all put in a very euphemistic way. It's very easy. The tissue is removed. A gentle suction is used. The products of conception are removed. It bears no resemblance at all to what actually happens. Um, And what you most commonly hear when women regret their abortions is them saying, nobody told me what it would be like. That's one of the commonest responses. You know, no one told me how developed the baby would be. No one told me how I'd feel. Nobody would tell me about the complications. You know, we can't speak of choice if we're not even telling women enough about the procedure that they can make an informed choice. And it's one thing in more highly developed countries, but to be able to export abortion to third world countries where there isn't even a desire to communicate what's happening. They're just told, here is a procedure. What happens in those countries, that is, again, something that is untold. And you, you have to wonder, you know, why is that? Well, I think that the there's a huge ideological push, um, as you know, to introduce abortion, particularly into sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I feel it's a, a form of neo-colonialism. It's we know best, this is our way of doing things, and we're going to impose it on you because we think that you're actually inferior to us. I think there's a lot of, of that sort of attitude. It, it may not be intentional, but I think that there's a, a very, very distinctly colonial flavour to the way abortion's being pushed there. Um, but it's being done so in the teeth of opposition. The overwhelming majority of people in pretty much every African country oppose abortion. In Uganda, it's something like 92% oppose abortion. And yet when I've said in debates, and I've quoted figures like that, I've actually been told quite seriously by members of the Women's Equality Party, well, we go with the 8%. Wow. That's how democracy works, apparently, according to certain branches of the feminist movement. You know, the fact that this is completely unwanted is not being uh, is not being talked about, and the huge amount of money that is going into promoting abortion um, is terrifying. But as you say, in a less developed country where you don't have the infrastructure, what we don't know is what the fatality rates are like, where there is no backup in this country, and the same in the states. If a woman undergoes, uh, say, a chemical abortion and she goes home and she hemorrhages, she can pick up the phone and call an ambulance. You know, she can get help within minutes. That's not the case in a shanty town in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, we we don't know we don't know what has happened, what the levels of infection are. Um, it's is a very frightening prospect. Somewhere like South Africa, which has permissive abortion laws, has very poor maternal mortality rates. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. 
A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Inside the Pages. We're talking with Fiorella Nash about her book, The Abolition of Woman, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women. When we're talking about the, the means of abortion, in the United States now, it is now legal to obtain the abortion pill through the mail. Now, well, yeah, so now you're going to have, I think, an untold amount of not only abortions, but the effect that it has physically on women. Now, see, I don't know if this is, the, is, is true in the UK as it is here, but any time that a pharmaceutical drug is, they're trying to push it, whether it's something for sleeping or weight control or whatever, it gives a whole uh, description of all the possible side effects. And you mm-hmm. also have to wonder, well, why in the heck would I take that pill if there's all yes. these side effects? And yet they will never do that with the abortion pill. And yet that will be one of the most pushed pills out there through agencies like Planned Parenthood. Yeah, there's um, in in this country there is uh, there's also a big push for chemical abortion, um, and there's all sorts of um, campaigns going on over here. For example, the buffer zone campaign to try to stop women getting alternatives from other sources, um, you know, hearing an alternative message, um, also to decriminalise abortion because in fact in this country. Um, it's it's a slightly different legal situation to the US. Abortion is not a legal right. It was decriminalized in the 60s through the 67 Abortion Act um, under certain grounds. Um, and in effect, you have a form of abortion on demand because doctors just tick boxes. Um, but it's not it's technically not a legal right. And that's something that's being pushed at the moment um, to increase the number of abortions. But my feeling is that chemical abortion is being pushed so much because there are fewer doctors willing to perform surgical abortions. Um, we have quite, there's a, a big recruitment crisis in the abortion industry in Britain, and I think probably also in the US. And I think giving out pills just makes it a little bit easier. And also it leaves the woman to deal with it on her own. 
there is the case that can be made for the ultrasound that when you're able to show what the, the little human being that is growing inside of you to a woman, that that dramatically affects her uh, desire to have that abortion. It makes it real for, for them, doesn't it, Fiorella? Yes, well, it's interesting because um, one, in, one of the appendices in my book is actually a, a review essay I wrote about um, a, pro, a very, very pro-abortion book which discussed ultrasound. And one thing I discovered is that the pro-abortion side really hate ultrasound. Mm-hmm. They really dislike it immensely because it it humanizes the unborn child. It puts the baby into the center of the discussion. Um, it's something that pretty much everyone now in the States, in Britain, will have seen a picture of an ultrasound scan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like the early days of ultrasound when they were expensive or even beforehand when they didn't exist at all, where you had no way of looking at the baby in the womb. That window in the womb is really changing the nature of the debate. Because for many couples, it's actually the first announcement of their baby. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll put the scan mm-hmm. on social media. And the pro-abortion don't like that. And they evidently don't like it because it is causing people to question abortion. It's harder and harder to pretend that you're not ending a life. And I don't really feel that the abortion industry has an answer to that. No, they really don't. And they don't have a, an answer to many questions. For example, the horrific practice of gender side. Yes, there was a lot of confusion when the story started to break in Britain. There was a, a sort of landmark story where um, a couple of journalists went undercover and they went round abortion facilities um, around Britain, posing as a couple who wanted a, um, a sex selective abortion and filmed doctors happily signing the forms. Yes, that's fine. Or oh dear, that's infanticide, isn't it? Oh, but never mind. Here you are. Mm. Um, and it caused absolute out, outcry. Um, there were questions asked in Parliament. I mean, it had really quite a big impact. And it was quite clear that the abortion industry just didn't know how to answer it. They started without an out denial. Oh, no, it's not really happening. It's a setup. Um, to then having to defend it. And mm. so you get the ludicrous situation where self-proclaimed feminists are supporting the killing of baby girls. Yeah, isn't that extraordinary? I mean, when you think of gendercide, of course, the the horrific practice that occurs in China, for example, mm. we're aware of that, and yet that is even a human rights violation that doesn't seem to make it uh, news stories. And they talk about human rights atrocities in that country or other countries, for that matter. Yes, I think there's. It- it's appalling, really, when you consider how many women in China have suffered as a result of the one-child policy or the population control policies, uh, more accurately. And just the idea that a regime can take personal control like that of every single woman's fertility can dictate to a couple when they have a child, at, at what stage in their marriage they can have a child. It's not just the number of children. It's the situation in which they may have a child. Now, we would never accept this in our own country. Can you imagine it? Mm-hmm. If you, you know you you got married and you know you you were told well, you have to apply for a certificate to have a baby, the idea that the state have a right to interfere with that most intimate of decisions between a couple um, is is absolutely unthinkable. And yet in China, this has been going on for what forty years now, mm-hmm. and with very little complaint from the West, and in fact with 
praise from the West and with the collusion of the West, because we're so obsessed with overpopulation that we're prepared to see millions of women suffer and babies die in order to stop the so-called population explosion. Well, then you end up having the situation where you literally don't have enough women because you need yes. to have a balance. I mean, there. I mean, that is something that is talked about. There is a shortage, literally, of women. Yes, I mean, it's it, the tragedy. It is. Is it is now being talked about the demographic crisis, the huge, uh, hugely skewed sex ratios in. China and India are some of the worst cases, but it, it's happening in countries all over the world and in communities all over the world. Um, and it's only now really being talked about. But this was warned about a generation ago that this was happening, that it was going to become progressively more and more serious. And nobody listened. And we're still not really listening. We're still not taking it seriously. There's still this very strong um, attempt being made to either pretend it's not happening or to pretend it's not a problem. But this is a very major problem. In China, you've got 40 million men who can never marry, who can never establish a family of their own, um, the so-called bare branches. And the impact for society is terrible. Um, you know, women suffer on every possible level when you have sex selective abortion, from the unborn babies who die, from the, the under fives who die as a result of neglect, to the grown women who have to cope with the social consequences of sex selective abortion and gender imbalance, the increased sexual violence, for example, the dehumanizing of women. Well, and Fiorella, I think we have to be honest with ourselves, too, so that anyone listening to us think that somehow while we're superior, we don't participate in that kind of behavior in our country. We do a type mm. of selection that is uh, we are sliding down a horrendous slope because yes, we've heard the the terrible situation of selecting children who we find out genetically may have Down syndrome, mm -hmm. and that their survival rate is. Uh, I keep using words like horrific and terrible and, and <laughs> atrocious because I I can't think of anything else that that we would actually limit their lives. But now because of genetic testing, uh, children who may, be, uh, may or may not but have the possibility of being autistic or may or may not have a, a certain capability, those type of selections are happening, and it's happening in developed countries at mm -hmm. an extraordinary rate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we need to be aware of this. I mean, this sort of quality controlling um, of of babies or um, this arms race against disability, as it's sometimes described over here, is becoming progressively more and more serious. Um, I mean, in Britain, 95% of babies with Down syndrome or spina bifida are aborted before birth. Um, and recently, a new uh, form of test, new kind of test was introduced, which will allow um, the diagnosis of Down syndrome earlier and earlier with the precise intention of, of abortion. It's not about finding out more information to help the baby. It is it is a seek out and destroy test. And you've got groups um, in Britain now like Don't Screen Us Out of um, young people with Down syndrome and their families speaking out against this, saying, hang on a second, this is genocide. You know, you are eliminating, you are systematically eliminating a, a portion of your, your um, society simply because we have a disability. And 
that it's gaining quite a bit of momentum and yet you still have this paradox on the one hand we're terribly pro-disability over here accessible public places and um, non-disablist you know um, language and all of the rest and yet the same people who are terribly in favor of disability rights have a tendency to be in favor of eugenic abortion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah. you've got this, this constant paradox which i think you know it's it's starting to be questioned but it's it's really taken a very long time for people to see that this is a form of eugenics it's a very very terrible injustice against people with disabilities i don't even know if we have time to even get into the unbelievable sophie's choice that is made by women when they involve themselves in in vitro fertilization that is fraught with moral problems it's not that we don't want you to be able to have the love of a child within the context of your family but I don't think people realize what they are going to be asked to do once they enter into an IVF type of medical procedure. Yes, I don't think, like abortion, I think I don't. I don't think enough information is put out um, about what IVF actually involves, particularly the burden on the woman's body. Um, the woman is disproportionately affected by the IVF process. Um, they are not made aware of the very low success rates, but also of the huge ethical problems that are associated with IVF. You can have a situation, I mean, I explore this a little bit in my book in, the ter in terms of commercial surrogacy, where a child can theoretically have five parents, you know, the commissioning parents, the gamete donors, and the surrogate, and also no parents because they all have the option of opting out. Um, and the impact that actually has on the identity of a child is huge. It is the commodification of human life. No matter how well-intentioned those who go through IVF are, and I want to say, absolutely, I'm not attacking any couple who have struggled with infertility, who go for IVF unaware of the the moral minefield it involves because it's not something we talk about it's not even something we really talk about in um, theological circles enough but it does involve a child being treated like a product and you know oh, yeah. um, and I think you know I have huge sympathy with anyone who cannot have a child I think it's an incredibly painful cross for a couple to have to bear and one we don't talk about enough um, I think we tend to assume that you know, couples just get on with it. I think the pain of infertility is a lifelong struggle um, in, in, in all sorts of ways. And I think we have got to be supportive of couples who find themselves in that situation. But I would, I would also say nobody has a right to a child. A child has rights. It's, diff you know, we, we've got to be very clear about that. And I would very strongly advise couples to consider adoption um, if they're in that situation, because I'm very aware that India, for example, which has a huge fertility tourism industry, has 12 million orphans. There's, there are many, many little ones in this world who need a family to love them. You could be that couple. Mm. I, I pray that that anyone who's listening who has that desire in their heart, I hope that would be the case. I Fiorella, the abolition of woman, how radical feminism is betraying women, I think is an important book because not only of the of the the terrible situation that we find ourselves in in 
with abortion and all of its different tentacles. What you bring forward in the book is the fact that this is something that women need to deal with because it's often a woman's voice that is leading the charge. Yes, I think um, I'm not saying that men do not have a very important role in this particular social justice movement. But I think if this battle is going to be won, it is to be won by women, um, supported by men. But the great thing about the new feminism, and pro-life feminism very much emerges from that, is that it is about women and men working together with complementary gifts as equals in pursuit of the common good. And I believe that together, united, we can put an end to abortion and we can support women. I think that's really important because it, at least in the United States, I would imagine it, it's probably the same in UK and as well as other places. Oftentimes in the political discourse that comes forward, there can be those voices that are, that are anti-life, that are pro-abortion, that are very shrill and very loud and mm-hmm. can... Uh, make claims to be a majority voice. When yeah. often case, it, when you look at different polls, you look at different situations, it, there is a, a, a silent voices that feel differently. And those voices need to be heard too, but they need to be heard in a way that isn't, um, at the very least, shrill. Yes. I think it's very important that we are more vocal. I think um, many women are becoming more vocal about this. I was delighted to see when um, a pro-life feminist group was barred from the women's marches that they turned up anyway Mm -hmm. (laughs) with their banner. And we need to be prepared to do that. We need to be prepared not to take any nonsense and to be a lot more forceful like that and say, you know, we will not be silenced. Um, And I think that's very encouraging and it has to happen. I would also appeal to anyone who opposes abortion, who can see it for what it is, to actually say something about it. There are so many uh, individuals who will tell me that they are privately against abortion, but they don't want to interfere and they don't want to get involved. That's not an answer. You know, you have got to put your voice forward. You've got to stand by your convictions. I believe that, you know, if everyone who is truly pro-life actually stands up and proclaims that, then we will make waves. That's right. I mean, really what all you're being asked to do is stand where you're at. Mm. You, you may or may not have that calling to do it on a grand national stage, but maybe what really what God ultimately is asking you to do where he's placed you is to stand and to speak truth where you're at. It's remarkable what a ripple effect that can have. Yes, and I would say to to people who are nervous about getting involved, who are nervous about speaking out, not to be because there's a role for everybody. I think we tend to push this idea that everybody has to be a public speaker, everyone has to be a debater. Not everyone is called to that, as you say. Um, It might be that you are called to pray. It might be that you're called to write letters, that you're called to um, attend marches or become a counsellor. There are so many things that you can do, even from the privacy of your own home. 
if necessary. Um, during one of my pregnancies, I was so ill, I couldn't take part in the 40 Days for Life. I couldn't do any pro-life campaigning. So I simply offered up my illness. You know, sometimes it's just the little things. And, you know, I do feel those private one-to-one conversations with friends, with family, with colleagues can be so significant. You don't have to be on a soapbox talking to thousands of people. You know, if you're just there quietly putting forward your argument and calmly and compassionately putting forward that argument, you know, you might change one person, who, you know, but that might be the person who then doesn't go on to have the abortion. Well, Fiorella, it, your book is so important because, as you said, you are a writer. And so the person who enters into this work, it, it's it's a, I don't want to say it's an easy read, but it's one that is guided very carefully and it informs in such a rich way that in the it, knowledge is power. Yeah. There, there's a freedom that when you understand something fully, then it's so much easier to enter in the discussion. Absolutely. It, it gives a lot of confidence if you have the facts and figures there. It really does. And, and certainly getting informed um, it, it's a very important thing to do. And the book is the culmination of years of research for me. I had the opportunity to go around the country doing lectures, getting feedback. So I feel, if I may say so, that it's it does the work for you. You don't have to go digging around for the information. It, it's there. Just, um, you know, knowledge is power. It is. And I think you also, uh, there's a grace about your work that there is a degree of charity towards those who are uninformed. There is the presumption that they truly do not know what they're doing. Yes, I think we have to be very aware of that when we're entering into discussions about this, that a lot of perfectly good people support abortion because they have never been able to think it through, because they have never had access to the information. I also think, and I think we're getting better at this uh, in the pro-life movement, to be aware of the difficulties that can face women when they're struggling with a, an unexpected pregnancy, um, even in apparently very happy circumstances. You know, you can be in a happy marriage and be pregnant, but you can be ill, you can have difficulties, you can have financial difficulties. And I think we have to be prepared to walk with women at absolutely every step of the way. Wow. Well, I wish we had more time. I really do. But any final thoughts? I suppose I would... I would appeal to listeners to get involved, to walk this road, and not to be discouraged. Whatever you see happening in the political situation, you can make a difference, and you do make a difference. Mm, well said. Fiorella Nash, thank you so much. Thank you. With Fiorella Nash, we've gone inside the pages of The Abolition of Woman, how Radical Feminism is Betraying Women. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is 
fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.